Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Revelation 11. Now, you stood for a while, aren't you? How do you feel about that? I should have been sitting down while I was doing all that. That way we could switch places just for a moment. And you could stand and I could sit. Revelation 11, verse number 1. The Bible says, There was given me a reed likened to a rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar in them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles. And the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. And that will get us started here this evening. Let's pray. Father, I come to you right now. God, as common as my prayer here on Wednesdays, Lord, that you would enlighten us. God, give us, Lord Jesus, understanding. I pray, O oh Lord, help me, God, to uh, be able to explain or articulate, Lord, in some way the, the words of the Scriptures here in the book of Revelation. God, let it, Lord, in some way benefit our lives. God, obtain knowledge, Lord, and strength, God, thereby. Lord, you said if we would read these or hear these, that we would be blessed. And so we, Lord, just lean upon that fact, Lord, knowing, God, that that will very much so be the case in the lovely name of Jesus Christ that I pray amen and amen the church say amen amen you may be seated you may be seated hallelujah so yes sister McGee should be coming home tomorrow I don't know why she wouldn't be she's coming she's bearing she sent me about six pictures of stacks of books that she's all bringing that used to be Grandpa Holland's uh, I can go through and see what I would like to add to my library she also sent a scroll today that he had a scroll and uh, it was the actual scriptures of the Ten Commandments written in Greek that was on that it had the Star of David on the back of it. it was interesting mom mom of course is keeping that that is that is too precious to 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 render anywhere else years years ago I thought about this today as I was uh, looking over this or the past couple of days studying this years ago Revelation 11 chapter number one I took in 1995 almost 20 years ago as a text for a sermon of mine and I called it measuring up I was 16 years old approximately then and uh, I went back and even I have that I have all my sermons uh, if they if they never made it into literal manuscript or written form I have pieces or particles of them that I endeavor someday to get into that form it may or may never happen because that all gets thicker and thicker as the days go but I have anything that I ever preached for the most part and I went back and looked at that and I realized 20 years ago how much that sermon was lacking the true context of the scripture that it was set in and uh, hopefully these many years removed we can do a little better with the first verse of Revelation chapter number 11 than what happened 20 years ago amen and so many of you were still there 20 years ago uh, that indulged me in that moment for that matter that was a camp meeting message that we did years ago at Tri-State Camp and I apologize to all those people uh, that are still dealing with that but never Nevertheless, once again here in chapter 11, this is really somewhat of a continuation of chapter number 10, a continuation. Uh, You remember that in the original manuscripts, there is not this division of chapter type thing. It just kind of was all flowed together. So chapter 11 is really a continuation of chapter uh, number 10. And so what we see, again, what John is doing, John is interacting Uh, with this vision that he's seeing. Everything that John is writing is what he is beholding seemingly in a vision. But there's certain times that he interacts with the vision. As a matter of fact, the last chapter he interacted with the vision uh, because the Lord told him to go and take that, that little book and eat of it and, and that it would be uh, sweet in his mouth but bitter in his stomach so he interacted with the vision that he was seeing and likewise in this chapter he interacts with the vision that he has here as well because the angel of the Lord now tells him uh, there was given unto John a, a, a reed likened to the rod the Bible says and he was told to measure the temple and the altar and them that worship therein And so here is a continuation now of chapter 10 and John is interacting with the vision as well. But in order to measure these things as the scripture prescribes, he was given a reed like a rod. 
whenever you see rod or the subject matter or this item called a rod in scripture there are many times that uh, whenever you speak of even measuring the word measuring whenever you speak of measuring in scripture that it many times is associated uh, with judgment Uh, to measure something was to judge something however there are two things in the bible Uh, with regard to God in measuring out things there's two things in the Bible that were measured out usually one was as I've already said was judgment and a second thing that was measured out was ownership someone might measure something for the purpose of ownership and a rod we see in scripture what, what, what we fasten our minds to very quickly concerning the rod we think sometimes about the Psalms 23 a rod and a staff you know they comfort me and we understand the rod that was a shepherd's rod was a rod that was used typically for correction but uh, this rod that is spoken of in Revelation 11 was typically used just for what John was using it for for measuring you might think of it similar to a yardstick although it was more than a yardstick they say that they grew around the Jordan River and they could be anywhere of 10 to 15 feet long and they were very lightweight so it made them very accommodating for carrying from place to place so he was given a rod for the use of of measuring now there are some differences of opinion whether or not this this measuring that John was doing the measuring, if you will, of the temple, the altar, and those that worship therein, whether or not it was for the time frame, here we go, for the time frame of the first half of the last week of Daniel's vision or the last half of the week of Daniel's vision. A week, if you'll remember those that were not here for Daniel, you don't even know what I'm talking about, all right? And we can't go there and rehash it. But that last week really being seven years, whether or not it was the first three and a half years or the second three and a half years, this measuring of the temple. Uh, I have my personal opinion uh, concerning this measuring of the temple, whether or not it was something that occurred during the first half or the last half of that last week. I believe that the measuring, this is just purely me, and I can tell you why in here just a minute. I believe the measuring actually took place somewhere along the midpoint. And it would, the, 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 the trampling then of the Gentile court would happen for that last half of the, the, the week that we spoke of in Daniel. For one, here's the thing, folks. In order for a temple to be measured, there must be a temple. In order for a temple to be measured, there must be a temple in existence to measure. And if you remember back in Daniel 9 when we did verses 24, 25, 26, 7, four verses we took three weeks on. (laughs) Surely you'll remember that heartache. But if you remember that, all of this last week or seven years started whenever there would be the ruler of the people, the prince of the people that would confirm the covenant. The Bible says he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week and that confirmation of the covenant and I'm re- I will rehash just a little because I want our minds to be refreshed that confirmation of the covenant was one would come and confirm the Abrahamic covenant that concerns the land concerning Israel the land concerning the Jews of Jerusalem and Israel as it is even the temple mount as it is the land Uh, and what more than likely would happen the confirmation of this covenant as we learned then would come about through a means probably of a peace treaty because there is a lot of uproar over in Israel and Jerusalem about the land remember you had the Palestinians and then you have the Israelites and there's this constant uh, negotiations try to happen constant war over the land of Jerusalem itself and particularly over the temple mount and so this confirmation of a covenant of the land being that all of Israel belongs to the Jews or to Israelites uh, that would only happen if there would be some type of peace happened between the Palestinians and the Jews because right now if I can rehash on the Temple Mount is that thing called the Dome of the Rock which is a Muslim shrine a mosque as it is it's controlled by the Muslims it is a Palestinian under Palestinian authority Palestinian control amen and so that though is the exact location where the Jews 
want to build their temple where they want to erect their temple but it's under Palestinian control right now they can't do that they would love to do that but they can't do that so they're doing everything they can besides that uh, preparing the furniture preparing the vestments for the priests uh, preparing everything they can prepare without building uh, the temple and we have talked about documentation concerning that the Palestinians on the other hand they believe the dome of the rock and that Muslim that Muslim shrine that they have there right now and that Jerusalem itself should be their capital the capital of the Palestinians they believe that should be their land and that it should belong unto them where the Jews then on the other hand insist that that location in Jerusalem should be their capital and it should belong to them because that is going to be the place the only place that their next temple can be built they believe that Dome of the Rock, if you've ever seen a picture of the Dome of the Rock, there is a literal, it's kind of like the tip of the iceberg type thing of a rock that is actually sticking up out of the ground. The Jews believe wholeheartedly that that is the location where Abraham attempted to take Isaac's life on Mount Moriah. They believe that is that because all these things correlate in Scripture, that that is the location where David built his altar and bought the threshing floor of Ornan in order to take the sacrifices and build an altar and get forgiveness from God that that is the location the location where Solomon's temple was built right there and so if there's going to be another temple built it's going to be where the other temples had been built right there on that location amen that's where they want to build that's where it's going to go and so in order for there to be any measure of a temple there must be a temple so if, they, if we're talking about uh, the Gentiles trampling the outer court for 42 months, as the Scripture says, all right, amen, and there must be a temple for that to happen in as well. So for someone to come down and measure here at the beginning, it would be an impossibility because there is no temple right here at the beginning. There might just be a covenant that would be confirmed, and after the covenant's confirmed for peace, for a solution to the land negotiation and deal, then... The Jews can erect their temple however long that may take. I know that they'll be ready. I'm sure all materials will be in place and it won't take long whenever they really need to get it done in order to accomplish it. Uh, if they were able to go back to Jerusalem, even Nehemiah's day, and within 52 is it days, uh, have something accomplished with ruins, let me tell you, I guarantee you, they're going to have all things in place whenever it needs to be done to get it done. But it can't start from the very beginning of here because there would be no confirmation of the covenant there would be no peace there would be no solution to the land that would be taking place uh, Israel is very very set on this temple being in the place where it needs to be I read in a book how Lindsay years ago wrote a book there's a new world coming and I quote from his book and this is dated probably in the 70s back in my era when I was born that is uh, it stated that temple bonds had been sold all around the world and a lot of money had been left in wills to the new state of Israel in anticipation of a new temple. In other words, he was stating that there were people, they had sold temple bonds to get an investment in on the temple, that where they'd sell these bonds for the purpose of raising money toward the new temple, and that even people, largely Jewish people, were leaving in their wills or their estates being totally contributed to the furnishing, whatever expense it might take, in order to build a new temple. Amen. And if you'll remember, we have spoke before, it's been a common practice of the Israelites or the Jewish people, been a common practice of them and the Palestinians to exchange land as currency for peace. We talked about this before, that sometimes the Jews have gave up part of their land for peace or the Palestinians for part of their land for peace, all right? And so this has been a common, common occurrence. So it's quite possible whenever a covenant would be confirmed concerning the land that there would be an exchange of land given for peace between these two peoples, the Palestinians and the Israelites, all right? Amen. Now, here's the thing. The one who confirms the covenant, we remember back in Daniel 9, whoever does the confirmation of the covenant, guess what? Just revealed himself to be the Antichrist. Whoever confirms the covenant, that's the Antichrist. Signed, sealed, and delivered from Daniel chapter number 9. Because the Antichrist is going to come in and he's going to help resolve, as it were, 
Uh, although it's a disguise and on false pretenses, he's going to come in and he's going to resolve the dispute over the Temple Mount between the Jews and the Palestinians and render really a false type of peace that will take place. His motive will really be impure and he will be deceptive by and large for three and a half years because they're going to build their temple. Sacrifices are going to be taking place again. Offerings are going to be rendered again. They're going to use it just as they used it years ago all over again seemingly with with the Palestinians everybody being put at arm's length not having to worry about war or anything else going on uh, against them during that time and so there will be no trouble all these sacrifices and everything will resume but by and large I said all that to say that I believe this measuring of the temple then is going to be during the second portion of this week because there must be a temple in existence in order for it to be measured secondly the angel specifically tells John not to measure the court without the temple because it was given to the Gentiles the court is without the temple was given to the Gentiles along with the holy city which the holy city is Jerusalem that and the city of Jerusalem was given to the Gentiles to trample underfoot, the Bible says, 42, in verse number 2, 42 months, which corresponds, 42 months is three. Let me back up here just real quick because I, I really hate leaving people out. Uh, months for the Jews are not like our months. Okay, months for the Jews, there's 30 days within a month for the Jews. It's like that, don't go to 31 or 28 and they don't have the leap year. Okay, uh, it's 30 months for the Jews. So 42 months for the Jews equals three and a half years for them or 1,260 days, however wish you look at it. So whenever it speaks of that 42 months, we're talking about a three and a half year period of time or as it was spoken in the book of Daniel, time, times, and half time which equates to three and a half years as well. He's saying that the holy city and that court without the temple, the Gentiles are going to trample under their foot for 42 months. Now, normally this type of time frame, 42 months, usually either correlates with the first half of the week or the second half of the week of the tribulation period. If I can get Luke 21, and can we give Brother Zach McGee a hand clap? He's been doing so well while Sister McGee was gone on this new system just with a short little learning time and curve. Amen, we appreciate that. Now, I did that and something will go wrong, but that's okay. Luke, you know how it goes. You know, you talk up something and then it'll just hit, but that's all. I don't have nothing against you, brother. Luke 21 and verse 24. The Bible says, And they, speaking of the people of Israel, they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles. Jerusalem, the holy city, shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Everybody say times of the Gentiles. Now, we want to go back and look at something else because there's two phrases or terminology both in Daniel and Revelation, mostly in Daniel, but we have this concept of times of the Gentiles and something else called fullness of the Gentiles, which are two different things. The fullness of the Gentiles is speaking about Gentile believers that would come during the church age and enter the church by new birth. That's the fullness of the Gentiles. Until the last Gentile person during the church age would enter the church ready for rapture day. That's the fullness of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles started all the way back in the scriptures of Daniel whenever Babylon first took Jerusalem into captivity. And the times of the Gentiles happened because Jerusalem from that point all the way even still now today has been under some type of Gentile rule or Gentile authority. Remember, we had Babylon, then we had Medo-Persia, we had the Greeks, we had the Romans during Jesus' day, and there's still some type of rule that Israel, 
Jerusalem, for that matter, the Palestinians, some type of Gentile presence and authority uh, that is there. And so the Bible says, Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles, until this big segment of time be fulfilled. Well, the Gentiles are going to have some type of rule or capacity of rule over Jerusalem until the Lord comes back and sets up his kingdom with an arm of iron upon this world. And so the times of Gentiles will not be fulfilled. The times of the Gentiles will not be fulfilled. Let's use a different color just so in case someone's colorblind. Amen. The times of the Gentiles will not be fulfilled until the very end, until the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right? Amen. Someone say amen. So the times of the Gentiles are the times when the Gentiles dominate the city of Jerusalem. And again, that is not going to end until the very end, until the return of Jesus Christ in his second coming. We have had dominion from the time of Daniel all throughout the ages of them coming and going under Gentile authority and Gentile power. almost said pyre. Hey, hallelujah. Gentile power. Amen. They are described now. In Revelations 11.2, they are described as trampling the court, the Gentiles are, trampling the court without the temple and the holy city, Jerusalem, for 42 months. So that makes me to believe, folks, that this is referring to the time during the great tribulation or the second half of the week. Because according to Luke, they will trod down, the Gentiles will trod down Jerusalem till the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled, until it's ended. So if they're to trod till it's ended and they were to trod 42 months starting here, it would end in the middle of the week before the second coming of Christ. But the times of the Gentiles is not ending to here. And so if I start where it ends and go back 42 weeks, I arrive somewhere, it's must going to start somewhere at the midpoint and go that direction. Does that everybody understand what I'm talking about right now? If, if you don't, don't raise your hand. <laughs> Amen. Luke says they're going to keep treading the holy city until it's fulfilled. And if that's the case, and it's just taking scripture with scripture. Revelation says it's happening for 42 months, particularly that it's the outer court and Jerusalem. Amen. And it's going to happen until it's finished, according to Luke, put the two together. And it tells me then it must start about midweek and continue then until it's finished or continue until the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And something interesting, during this time, during this time, that we're speaking of this last week where there's a bunch of activity going on, a bunch that we've already talked about because the seals and the trumpets and the vials, all this is happening during this time period, all right? All that's happening during that time period. All that famine and war and the third gone and the fourth gone and, and locusts coming out like evil spirits from the bottomless pit and all this stuff, horrific stuff happening all during that time period. It seems in that dispensation, the church age, what we call, there's different dispensations throughout Scripture. The church age dispensation more or less started on the day of Pentecost and it ends on Rapture Day for the church. That's the church age dispensation. It ends there. But this dispensation, evidently not the church age dispensation because we believe prior to this moment is the rapture of the church, all right? The rapture of the church prior to that moment. The Jews seemingly are, are going back, uh, Bishop, to being identified as a covenant privileged people in the eyes of God. Because if you remember before the church age, you remember he hadn't come except for the lost house of Israel, for the Jews. That's the way it was termed until that broadened up and opened up the Gentiles. Whenever we get into the church age, there's Jew and Gentile, Samaritan, it didn't matter. But if you remember, remember the tribulation, first half, last all that is really purposed for Israel for the Jews and so during this time frame it's like he's turning his attention now toward his covenant privileged people from the very beginning because even with that look now the Gentiles are in the out court they're not given access to anything else he's making distinction and difference again between Jew and between Gentiles uh, will there be people as we talked about tribulation saints Gentiles that you know may come during that time frame well yeah perhaps so but God does not have a redemptive covenant in this time frame particularly for the Gentile it's for the Jew 
It's for his covenant people. So he says, don't even worry about measuring, if I will, through terms ownership. Don't even worry about claiming ownership for the outer court. I'm concerned with Israel. I'm concerned with the Jews at this frame and moment of time. Romans chapter 11, just some scriptures to bounce off of you concerning this. Romans 11 verse 25, the apostle Paul speaks. He says, for I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. That blindness in part is happened to Israel. Because what? Christ came, they did not accept him as their Messiah. Blindness in part happened to Israel until, important phrase, the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Now note, that's fullness of the Gentiles, not times of the Gentiles. Fullness of the Gentiles is describing the Gentiles that are coming into the church. Whenever the last one comes in and rapture day is over, when rapture happens, the fullness of the Gentiles is complete. It's over. It's done. All right? He says blindness in part has happened until Israel until the rapture of the church. Uh-huh. They're a, little, they're a little bit part and blind. The Jews are blinded. They're not seeing him maybe as the true Messiah as they should be seeing him until the rapture of the church. Because why? After the rapture of the church, there's some events that start to take place through the tribulation where the Lord is constantly through judgment trying to prod his people back in alignment back in reality that he is the Messiah that came and that he is coming back to set up his kingdom. So he's dealing with the Jews. And so verse 26 says, and so all Israel shall be saved. Now, let me say it like this. If everybody think that Israel just has a blank check, doesn't matter what you do, you, you got it made Israel. That's not the case. All Israel who will, will be saved who accept him as their Messiah. All right. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. So there's a distinction now. He has the outer court. This is the Gentiles and these, uh, my covenant and my privileged people are the Jews during this dispensation. But that's not the way it was prior to that in the church dispensation. Because we read scriptures like Galatians 3, 28 during the church dispensation that says things like this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor nor free. There, I had it here, brother. There is neither male, you just try me out, nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. During the church age, says we make no difference between Jew and Gentile, bond or free. Whenever you're in the church, you lose your, your separate identities of Jew and Gentile. Now you're just the church. But whenever you reach this stage, church age is over with. For instance, also Colossians 3 and 11, describing the time during the church age. Colossians 3, 11, he says, where, neither, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond to free, but again, Christ in all, Christ is all and in all. Again, there is no distinction during the church age, Jew and Gentile, but when we get to this dispensation of tribulation, God, once again, is making a distinction here. These are Gentiles, these are Jews. My main purpose for this time, if a Gentile gets saved, that's fine and dandy, but my purpose, ultimate reaching factor, is toward the Jew, is for my people. Amen? So we're talking about, in Revelation 11, a literal temple. Some people try to allegorize this temple, spiritualize this temple, but it's a real temple. It's a real temple. There's two temples actually mentioned in Revelation chapter number 11. Uh, one of the temples is on earth and the other temple is in the heavens toward the end of the chapter. Uh, the temple that is to be rebuilt in the holy city of Jerusalem, of course, is the temple on earth. It will be the temple that the Antichrist will enter into and stop the sacrifices and the offerings. The one that he'll enter into according, what is it, Ephesians or 2 Thessalonians 2, or 2 Thessalonians, that is, where he walks in and proclaims himself to be God. Amen. And wants to be worshipped as God. That will be the earthly temple. Amen. The other temple spoken of toward the end of Revelation 11 is a temple of heaven. And we'll see toward the end here that in that temple we're given a glimpse of the Ark of the Covenant that is seen in that temple. So the first temple mentioned is the temple of God. Amen. It will be the future temple. Amen. 
that is going to be erected that the Jews want to erect right now but they just can't because someone has control of the property where they want to erect it. The this temple that is being spoken of just as a disclaimer, this temple is not speaking of the temple that Jesus walked in in his earthly ministry. This is not Herod's temple. We know according to history that that temple and according to God's word for that matter, even in Daniel chapter number nine, that that temple was destroyed by a man called Titus somewhere around uh, 70 AD. And since that was destroyed in 70 AD, there has never been another temple rebuilt. As a matter of fact, while John is writing in the book of Revelation, which scholars say is written somewhere between uh, 90 or 95 AD, we're talking about 20 to 25 years after the temple has been destroyed. And even during the time of John's writing, there is no temple in existence, no temple at all. So this has to be a temple that's going to be built but is not built yet, but preparations are already being made for its construction. Someone say amen. <clears throat> Revelation 11, verse number 3. Amen. Thank you, buddy. Revelation 11, verse 3. The Bible says, continuing now, from the temple to the witnesses. And by the way, I named this tonight, Temples, Witnesses, and the Seventh Trumpet, if anybody's interested. Amen. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score days. Three score days. A score is 20. Three times 20 is right over there, 60. <laughs> Don't mess with me. I have been rushed tonight. They shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, these two witnesses, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. Verse 6. These two witnesses have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. So he says there are two witnesses that he is empowering to prophesy during this time of tribulation. Now, their prophecies are going to be for 1,260 days. So I already got this all here. You understand that's the same as 42 months. That's the same as three and a half years. And so we'll answer the question, not this week, but probably next week, when will the two witnesses be active with those 1,260 days? Will it be during the first half of the week? or the second half of the week. And we'll answer that next week, perhaps. Amen. We'll explore that a little bit more. At least I'll give my opinion because there's like some of these things you can't give a definite, but I can give perhaps my opinion. The Bible says that these two witnesses, these two witnesses are clothed with sackcloth. They are clothed with sackcloth. Now, sackcloth in God's word, you read and you see the occurrence of sackcloth with Job and you see it with different people throughout the scriptures. Many times it's an indication of mourning. It's an indication of humility. When someone was humbled or they, 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 they were humiliated, they cast dust upon their face and they put on sackcloth to indicate their mourning and their humility. Amen. Also, those scriptures oftentimes are associated with repentance. The sackcloth and the mourning, the humility, all of that associated with repentance. And they, these two witnesses, like many, many other witnesses or prophets, whenever the prophets came and prophesied and they were prophesying some warning or some word, whenever they did that, they, the message that they bore, they, they were not cocky about that. They didn't feel good about telling them about some pending doom that was coming. They, they didn't get a high off of that. Many times, look at Jeremiah. He's the weeping prophet. You know, he bore the words that he had to speak to God's people with, with mourning and, and with humility. And he was saddened over the message that he had to deliver. But hopefully the message that would be delivered by the prophets long ago and even during the time of revelation, hopefully it will re re provoke some type of repentance for the people. 
particularly, again, particularly for the Jewish people because the tribulation was tailor-made for them. So here are two witnesses. They're in sackcloth. They're humbled by the message that they have to bear. There's some humility that they have. They're mourning because of what they're having to say, but they're hoping whenever they're finished it will provoke some type of repentance for the Jews, some type of repentance for Israel. Now, some... Some attempt to allegorize the two witnesses as one of the witnesses being the Old Testament, one of the witnesses being the New Testament. But the word witness in the New Testament, in the Greek, always refers to persons or people. Persons or people. So to take this as being a witness being uh, the Old Testament, New Testament does not even fall within the brackets because the word witness always pertains to people. In addition to that, if they did take them allegorically or figuratively, there'd be a lot of other figurative language that would have to be dreamed up in order to interpret the scriptures because the interpretation says that these witnesses prophesy, that these witnesses die, that people see these witnesses' bodies so if you're, talk, if you're talking about those, that's the two testaments, you, you've got to really start making something up in order to facilitate uh, the story of what's going on and what's happening. Uh, and they also resurrect. In verse number 4 of Revelation 11, if you can turn your attention to verse number 4 of Revelation 11, it causes us to consult the Old Testament because it says that these two witnesses are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before God. And we have a picture in Old Testament Scripture that relates somewhat to what Scripture just said there in verse number 4. Zechariah chapter number 4, another prophetic book of the Old Testament, and verse number 11, if I can read a few verses of Scripture, states these words, Then answered I and said unto him, what are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? And I answered again and said unto him, What be these two olive branches which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? And he answered me and said, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then said he, these are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, the book of Zechariah, Zechariah being the author or writer, if you will, of this book, he lived between the time of Ezra, which is also a book, and Nehemiah, which is also a book. It's in this time frame of Ezra and Nehemiah there was the rebuilding of a temple in Jerusalem. It had been approved in Ezra's time for this temple <coughs> to be rebuilt, but there really wasn't a lot being done. They got a good start, and then there was a pause and stopped, and nobody was doing anything. Well, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Zechariah to help bump things along a little bit. He was there to encourage a man by the name of Zerubbabel, and another man by the name of Joshua. And whenever I speak of Joshua, I'm not talking about the Joshua that took command after Moses. All right, this is Joshua the high priest during this time frame. He came to encourage them to get them moving because what they wanted to do, Zerubbabel and Joshua was going to be used to lead the rebuilding of Jerusalem and in order to restore Israel back to God. And so the two that Zechariah is referring to is Zerubbabel, which was the governor, and Joshua, which was the priest or the high priest. That after the captivity, amen, Joshua the high priest was going to restore God's people back to God. Amen. Through their worship, through their sacrifices. And Zerubbabel was going to make sure that the city of Jerusalem would be rebuilt again. That was his responsibility. Joshua was going to be attending to the spiritual aspect of their lives. Zerubbabel was going to be attending to the more natural or carnal aspect of their lives. And remember, Joshua is the high priest. And a high priest is, in essence, the representative for a nation. When you was a high priest, you was a representative for the nation. So if you will, the whole nation of 
Israel. And we don't have time tonight, although I do have some time, but we don't have a whole lot of time. Whenever you read about, and you could do this as homework, I guess, Zechariah chapter number three, you read about Joshua, the high priest. He's approaching the Lord, and he is in unclean garments. And the Lord changes his garments to clean garments. All right, and if he is a representative of a nation, particularly the nation of Israel, it's as though Israel is coming before the Lord in unclean garments and filthiness and uncleanliness. And God says, I'm going to change your garments. You were unclean, but I'm going to make you clean. What's happening? A restoration of Israel to a clean state, a pure state in Zechariah chapter number 3 but whenever the Lord was speaking to Zerubbabel remember he's starting to build the foundation of the house and build a little bit more upon that he's encouraging the people to do so but if you'll remember in Zechariah 4 and I've preached on uh, this verse the spirit of the Lord spoke to Zerubbabel how this was going to happen he said it's not by might nor by power but by my spirit saith the Lord of hosts God's saying, by my spirit, I'll restore Israel back to God. By my spirit, I'll restore a broken down city of Jerusalem back to the Lord. And the way then that he depicted it was the scripture illustrates there's two olive trees that have some type of conduit that's leading to a big bowl. And from the bow are seven spouts that's leading to seven branches of a candlestick. And the, uh, what goes into a candlestick or a menorah? Oil, olive oil. Christ says, I have these two olive trees, these two anointed ones. For this generation, it was standing for Zerubbabel and Joshua. God was going to work, his spirit was going to work through them. That oil was going to feed the bull and feed the menorah and give the light, if you will, be the source of it all. Amen. God working through them to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and restore Israel as a nation to God. That was then. But that was a prophecy that was for then and in the future. Because now in the book of Revelation, we have two witnesses. He says, there you are the all the trees and the lampstands that he was speaking of. In other words, just as Zerubbabel and Joshua was used to restore Jerusalem and God's people, God sends two witnesses during this time frame of trying to what Israel was left on the world or will be left on the world to restore them back to good standing with God and to restore Jerusalem to somewhat of a good standing as well. Everybody got time? You do. Thank you. I appreciate that. Amen. Just pay attention up here. Who are these two witnesses? Who are these two olive trees or lampstands as it further describes in Scripture? I'm going to throw some of this out, but let me preface all this by this. We don't know for sure. Okay? So that already, man, we can drop our guard. But what, what, what could some of these two, two witnesses be? Some believe that perhaps these two witnesses may be Elijah and Enoch. Because both Elijah and Enoch never died. Elijah was translated in the whirlwind of fire. Enoch walked with God and was not. Some say, well, maybe it's those two because if these two witnesses come back and preach for 1,260 days and then they are killed or they die, well, they never died before. Some say, well, you know, the Bible does say it's appointed to man that he, once he should die. So these two got to die because it's appointed that once they should die. Well, that theory kind of falls through because there's going to be a lot of people that's raptured on the day the rapture comes that never seen death. All right? But perhaps it's Elijah and Enoch. For one thing, think of Enoch. Whenever Enoch was walking with God, if you go back to that time frame, that's the time prior to the flood, uh, prior to that time frame. And during that time prior to the flood, there was a lot of violence that was prevalent upon the world. Uh, there was only a real small remnant of people that even believed in God. The Bible says that their heart and their hearts was evil continually. There was wickedness. The Bible says they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. And with all of this type of backdrop before the flood, here's Enoch, a man that is walking with God. 
And so they think, well, man, if he, he was capable of walking with God during such a horrid time period in that day, that's the type of man that we would need during this day for sure with famine and war and pestilence and everything going on. We'd need another man that would be able to walk with God. Well, okay, so there's a possibility. Some believe that perhaps these two witnesses may very, they always believe Elijah's thrown in the group. That perhaps it could be Elijah and Moses. Because the Bible describes these two that they have power to shut up heaven, which is indicative of Elijah. Whenever uh, Ahab was serving in the court, he said, by the word of the Lord, he says it shall not rain for the space of what? Three and a half years. And interestingly enough, you'll note in your scripture tonight, uh, verse number, hallelujah, where's it at? I don't know. Verse number six, the Bible says these two witnesses have this power. These have power to shut up heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. Well, the days of their prophecy is going to be 1,260 days, or if you will, three and a half years. Quite peculiar. Elijah was able by the word of the Lord to shut up heaven for three and a half years ago. I mean, did it once. He can do it again, you know, by the word of the Lord. Perhaps it is Elijah. But also it describes this one as having the power to, to shut up heaven but also turn water into blood along with any other plague that they would decide as oft as they will. Well, that's a real good description of Moses. With the plagues in Egypt, one of the plagues was turning water into blood and having the ability to do other plagues that harmonizes with the life as of Moses as well. So we can see that maybe that's a possibility. But here's one thing, and this is just Jewish tradition, but the Jews believed that before the end, uh, at the setting up of the kingdom of God, that Moses would come. The Jewish tradition believes that Moses would come back. And they used Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, and verse 18 as their premise. Because the Bible says... The Lord thy God, this is Moses speaking, will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee of thy brethren like unto me, Moses. Unto him ye shall hearken. Verse 18 basically says the saying, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee, speaking of Moses, will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. So the Jews believe that Moses, or maybe we can use the terminology of Scripture, one like unto Moses which is kind of what I like to prefer, one like unto Moses, will show up again. And evidently, if this one in the book of Revelation, if this one witness isn't Moses, he is very much so like Moses in that can turn water into blood and have the ability to do of the plagues. And interestingly enough, whenever Jesus took three of his disciples up a mountain and his garments became glistening and transfigured before them, who was it that showed up on the mountain with Jesus up there? Moses. And Elijah appeared before the Lord and was speaking about his upcoming death. Something else interesting concerning Omo is that according to Scripture, we don't know that Moses' body was ever found. As a matter of fact, it was disputed over. Michael, the archangel, had a word to say about it. In Jude chapter number 1 and verse number 9, the Bible says in Jude 1, 9, again, there is no other chapter in Jude except one, <laughs> Yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. Durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. So they had a dispute over the body. No one knows really where Moses may be. And I'm just on this out here as think, perhaps, perhaps God wanted to retain the body of Moses because he wanted him for this purpose. I'm just throwing that out there. Amen. And back to this idea of Elijah, thinking about Elijah, he was able to shut up the heavens for three and a half years, Old Testament. This guy's going to, it's going to be shut up for three and a half years during the year, days of their prophecy. Remember, whenever all that happened, there was the great contest on Mount Carmel between the prophets of Baal and the grove and Elijah. You remember all that that took place? And the real question of matter is this, let the God that answer by fire, let it be God. What the real trial was, they was trying to decide who God was. You remember that? That's really what the real trial was. Who's, who is God? Well, that's going to be a similar trial that's happening during this day. Who's God? God or this one that's presuming and portraying himself as God? The Antichrist. Amen. The Antichrist. Continue with this Elijah theory. We're doing good. 
I rushed to get this, so I'm finishing it. I'm telling you right now. Malachi 4 and verse 5. The Bible says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great, and everybody say, and dreadful, dreadful day of the Lord. Now, Christ came the first time in Bethlehem's manger, but we do not describe that as great and dreadful day of the Lord. That wasn't a dreadful day. That was a celebratory day. That was a day of celebration and excitement. Amen. But he said, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, which more or less describes more this time frame. The great and dreadful day of the Lord is in this time frame of the tribulation of his second coming when he comes back with his fist of judgment. Because many people, they speak of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was Elijah. Well, there were many people that thought John the Baptist, that that was Elijah. But John the Baptist plainly told them in Luke or John 1, he plainly told them when they asked, are you Elijah? He said, I am not Elijah. Well, there you go. Not only that, the Bible though, in speaking of John the Baptist, it does say that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah or Elias in Luke chapter number one. So he did come in the spirit or similitude and power of Elijah, but he didn't come particularly as Elijah. So what we do here is we don't know for sure who they are. They may not necessarily be Elijah, Enoch, or Moses. It might not be none three of them. They might just be witnesses in that hour that have similarities to Enoch and to Moses and to Elijah, or at least similar to them. But we do not know for sure. If you'll stand with me, we'll go next week and talk about this a little bit more because these boys are going to prophesy they're going to bring a lot of torment in their prophecy. They're going to do this for the many days that they were staged to do it. But then there's going to be a beast come out of the bottomless pit. It's going to kill them. They're going to lay in the cities of Jerusalem for three and a half days. And it's, the Bible says that people are going to rejoice. They're even going to give each other gifts. It's like satanic Christmas. They're going to give each other gifts because of what's happening. But on day three and a half, these boys are getting back up and they're being raptured. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit and then dabble into the seventh trumpet. Amen. And continue in our study in the book of Revelation. Amen. And I'll give you my opinion about when those two witnesses are really prophesying during the first half or the second half and, uh, and, and just give you an opinion on my part. Amen, amen, amen. Hallelujah. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.